0: Over the last few weeks, as we have been journeying through the narrative of, of Scripture together, as we've been kind of walking through the story of, of the Bible, we've we've been talking about Paul. We've been talking about uh, the kind of expansion of the the early Christian Church, how Christianity began to spread throughout the the, the Mediterranean world, and. Uh, two weeks ago, we, we talked about the invitation that, that Jesus extended to his disciples right before his ascension. And he gave them a charge and says, all right, continue the work that I began. Continue the work that I began, and, and that charge still applies to us today. And then this last week, we, we looked at one of the earliest debates that the, the first Christian church had together, because once a people start moving together, they start saying, how do we, how do, we do life together? And, and so we, we looked last week at something called the Jerusalem Council where the church had to wrestle with what it means to, to be in community with a diverse set of cultures and a diverse set of, of places. And I mentioned that the challenges of the early church are, are similar to some of what we deal with today. But the reality is we, we need to be a community that has all different types of, of skill sets and talents. And we also need to learn to be a community that navigates diversity and, and disagreement well. And so that's kind of what we, we looked at last week, and this morning we're in our third week of looking through the Apostle Paul. And we're, we're going to explore kind of the tail end of his ministry, looking at a charge that he gives to to one of uh, his mentees, somebody that he mentors, Timothy, um, in his last letter that he writes. But before we dive into Scripture, I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for bringing us together this this morning and for the opportunity to open your word together, to be challenged by it, to be encouraged by it. God, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what you have for us, and I ask that you would take my words and use them for your kingdom. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So there are, are 13 letters in the New Testament that are, are attributed to Paul. As a, a quick debate, there's there's some de- or a quick aside. There, there's some debate about some of those letters, not all of those letters, but there's some debate about whether or not Paul actually authored them all or if, if some of his contemporaries authored him and, and ascribed them to him. It wasn't something that was done out of maliciousness or out of deceit. It was more of a way that that a group of disciples would honor their, their teacher. And so more of a way that they would say, this is something that, that the guy who led us taught us and we want to share that with the church. In the passage that Johanna read earlier from Acts, we're given a, a glimpse of how Paul's final days looked. He went through a, a few different cycles where he was arrested, questioned, and then released. Arrested, questioned, and then then released. He he was had this this kind of very unique perspective on the world, and that he was a both a Roman citizen and a well-educated Jewish man. So in his world, he was as privileged as a person could be, which is probably one of the reasons he was released as many times as he was. And because of that privilege, he spends a lot of time in a place called Caesarea Maritama, not not to be confused with a couple months ago we talked about a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is in northern Israel, it's a place where, where Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? But Caesarea Maritama is this uh, kind of small snapshot of Rome on the Palestinian or, or, or Israeli side of, of the Mediterranean Sea. And, and it was a, a settlement that was set up really by Rome to remind the rest of the world that Rome is important. And so it was like a, a mini-Rome in Israel and Palestine. And some of the times that Paul spends there, he's there under house arrest. Other times while he's there, he's there kind of learning about the culture. Uh, we, We need to remember that the reason he learned about the culture or needed to learn about the culture... Was because his Roman citizenship was only tied to his hometown. He was born in a place called Tarsus. We called him Saul of, of Tarsus. And the only reason that that was a part of Rome was because it had been conquered earlier by Alexander the Great. So if he was going to take the gospel to Rome, to the ends of the earth, a good place to start was in the Roman colony that was in his backyard. At some point, after an adventurous road, uh, boat trip, Paul's arrested in Rome, he's thrown into prison, and most think that it was during that time that he was in prison that he wrote his letter to to Timothy, possibly days before he he died. The letter begins in the same way that that many of Paul's letters do, with a greeting of grace, peace, and and mercy. He passes the peace to to the people that he writes to, to the churches that he writes to, and then we read a letter written to Timothy. I thank God whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Louise, and in your mother, Eunice. And I am persuaded now lives in you also. Paul's writing to Timothy and saying, hey, you're a mama's boy. And I'm grateful that you are a mama's boy. I'm a mama's boy, so I can relate relate with, with Timothy. He starts by looking back, first acknowledging his own ancestors, and then giving thanks for the faith of Timothy's. And it, it's because of the, the previous generations that, that Timothy is where he is. It, it's a subtle mind, reminder to him to say, hey, you wouldn't be where you are Today, if it weren't for your mom, if it weren't for your your grandma, it's a reminder to us as a church that we wouldn't be where we are today if it weren't for those moms, grandmas, and dads and grandpas who, who came before us and kind of built a foundation. So as we take today to remember moms, we don't remember our moms because they're perfect. We, we, we don't remember our, our moms because they get everything right, but, but here, Timothy gives thanks because God moved, or Paul gives thanks because God moved through Timothy's mom and Timothy's grandma. And we give thanks for moms for those same reasons. And as Paul writes, that, that faith that, that once lived in Timothy, or Timothy's grandma and, and mom, now lives in him. And He continues. not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. This is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I spent this last week in, in Pasadena with about 10 other pastors who, who serve in all kinds of different contexts all over the world. There was a pastor from New Zealand, from Christchurch, New Zealand. There, there was one from Colombia. There was a, another one from Hong Kong, and the rest of us were from, from all over the United States. There were Presbyterians and Methodists and Episcopalians and non-denominational folks. We served in big churches and small churches and everything you could think of in between. We spent a lot of time kind of diving deep into theology. We, we, we spent some time talking about challenges in our churches. And then we talked some about the global landscape of, of Christianity today. But more than anything, we, we talked about our calling, both our own individual calling and for us in that room as pastors, but also collectively about the calling of the church, the calling that that we have as a community. And there was a moment where we were asked to share some of our own personal story. And I shared that that my calling was more of a a gradual one. It wasn't like Paul on the road to Emmaus. I didn't have a, a dramatic conversion experience a a dramatic come to jesus moment and for a long time i used to think because i didn't somehow my story was less valid because i didn't have that eye-opening moment that that paul had but the reality is it makes sense and in the diversity that is god's kingdom our stories all should look a little different for me, my call came through a, a series of events when I was, I was 17 that helped me to see that God had always been moving in my life, where, where I, I kind of put the math together and say, oh, that that was God moving in my life. So I was molded by my grandparents, by my parents, by my aunts, by my uncles. My faith was influenced by Mr. Schiffman and Mr. Dustin, my third and fifth grade Sunday school teachers, and by, by Mrs. Fate, the director of the children's choir when I was a kid, and by the countless youth advisors that poured into me when I was in middle school and high school. In many ways, my call to faith was similar to, to Timothy's which came through his grandmother and through his mom. Paul's letter to Timothy gives thanks for their influence, but it also reminded him that they couldn't live out his faith for him. That he needed to live out his faith. That that they couldn't live out his faith for him. It was something he had to own himself. In some ways, the week I I spent in in Pasadena this this last week reminded me of that same reality. It disrupted a routine and invited me to kind of step back from my my daily activity, my daily roles as as pastor, as as dad, as as husband, all all roles that are incredibly important, but but was an invitation to kind of step back and say, remember that in addition to those roles, you're, you're also... A beloved child of God. So one of my hopes for us this morning, and really my hope for us each and every Sunday, is that we would be disrupted during our week, that Sunday morning would be a disruption to our week to remind us of that reality, that you are a beloved child of God. First and foremost, you've got plenty of other titles, but that you are also a beloved child of God. So my hope is that we'd come to church, arriving from busy weeks in the craziness of the world, to be reminded that we are loved, that we have been saved, and we have been called by the Savior of the universe. And then when we leave this place, when we go into our neighborhoods and communities, to our families, to our places of work, literally everywhere we go, that the way we live is in response to that identity, that we are saved, that we are called we are beloved child of God. You are loved, saved, and called. But what do those two words mean? Saved, called. I think sometimes we read them and we think, oh, those are church words. Those, those are Christianese. That, that, that doesn't apply to the rest of my life. That just applies to what I do on, on Sunday morning. What do they really mean what do those words mean now typically when we hear the word saved we picture altar calls we we, we, we picture a pastor coming up and, and calling everybody to come up to the altar and 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 be saved or, or we, we picture overzealous street prophets walking around passing out bible tracks and saying hey brother are you saved Hey, 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 brother, are, are you saved? Hey, sister, are, are you you saved? And, and while I don't come from that tradition, I don't think we should assume that God hasn't used altar calls and tracts to change people's lives. The reality is salvation, being saved, is at the heart of what we believe. It's at the heart of the gospel message. The word gospel literally means good news. Literally means good news. And, and Scripture is pretty clear that that good news is the reality that Jesus saves us, that Jesus saves. And here's where it gets a little uncomfortable for a lot of people. It's uncomfortable because most of us have grown up in a a society where self-sufficiency is hammered into us at an early age. My my youngest daughter turned two this last Tuesday, and, and every time she climbs into her high chair by herself, she cheers like she just won an Olympic medal. She's done it herself. And then if you try to help her clip in, she says, I do it. I do it. She wants to be self-sufficient. And who's to say self-sufficiency is all that bad? I've yet to meet a parent who doesn't celebrate when they throw away their toddler's last diaper. And, and, and parents equally cheer when their, their kids graduate from high school. And, and high school kids, they, they, they celebrate, I've done it, all of this hard work. I, I, I've done it. We, we live in a society where, where self-sufficiency is celebrated. And and again, for good reason. I don't want my kids to be in diapers forever. For, for, for good reason. There's freedom in self-sufficiency. It implies growth, achievement. The very fact that we need to be saved means that we can't do whatever it is that Jesus came to do on our own. And that is a little unsettling and that leads us to a second place of discomfort what exactly is it that Jesus came to do if we're caught, if we're saved well saved from what saved saved to what the overzealous street side prophet i mentioned earlier might be quick to tell us hey you're saved from eternal damnation and, and though i wouldn't use those exact words and think it can be dangerous to do so. I think it's equally dangerous to water down the gospel and to say we're we're not saved from from anything. We are saved. It's a part of our identity. We don't have to look any further than the passage we just read from Second Timothy to answer that question. What are we saved from? Jesus abolished death and brought life. Or as Eugene Peterson translated, since the appearance of our Savior, nothing could be plainer. Death defeated life vindicated in a steady blaze of light all through the work of Jesus. Saved from death to life, saved from brokenness to being made whole, saved from living without purpose to having one. Salvation, the act of being saved, comes through the acceptance that we are not self-sufficient that there are certain things we cannot do on our own. We can't conquer death on our own. We can't heal our brokenness on our own. We, we can't have our purpose on our own. That is what it means to be saved by, by Jesus. We can't earn God's forgiveness. It's all been done through the work of Jesus. It's what it means to be saved. For some of us, the idea that we are called is just as uncomfortable to the concept that we are, are saved. It's another church word, right? Called. It's a word that pastors use. It's a word that pastors use, or, or, or Sunday mornings, it's okay, we might, we might talk about our calling. But the way it's used in Scripture paints a much broader picture than just being a church word. The act of being called by God is an extension of being saved. The two identities, they, they go hand in hand together. We are saved and we are, are called. When we read about Jesus calling His first disciples, we're told that He, he finds a couple of fishermen and He calls out to him, Simon, Andrew, come follow Me and I'll make you fishers of men. They're probably a little confused, not sure what to make of his invitation. But it's important that we see that Jesus doesn't ask them to step too far out of their comfort zone, at least not yet. Their profession, they're fishermen. They're fishermen. Jesus doesn't say, Simon, Andrew, come follow me, come be pastors. He doesn't say, come, come follow me. Come be elders and come be deacons. He doesn't use church language. Come, follow me. Reframe your vocation. Reframe living into your identity. Keep being a fisher. Because that is who you are. That is in your identity. But reframe it. Now you'll be a a, a fisher of, of men. He takes what they know, their profession, their vocation, their calling, and he reshapes it. I want us to hear this. Our our calling is just as much about who we are as what we do. It's about our identity, and it's about how we live out our identity. Being called by God really just means recognizing you've been made in God's image for a specific purpose. On one hand it's so simple, but on the other, it's it's so easy to forget each of us called by name. Sometimes in a dramatic way, like like Paul, and sometimes in a way like Timothy, where it's passed down through generations. So this morning I want us to remember that, that we are saved and that, that we are called, and I, I really want to invite you to find some time this week to rest in that reality that you are saved, that you are, are called. Maybe that means finding a quiet place to reflect on Scripture and pray. Or maybe it means getting away and, and disrupting your routine like, like I did in, in Pasadena this last week. Whatever you need to do to kind of step back, step back from the everyday life and say, oh yes, I am a beloved child of God. That is... That is A part of my identity. Before reminding Timothy of his saved and called identity, in verses 6 and 7 of what we just read, Paul encourages him to be bold and to rekindle the fire that God had placed in him. He's preparing Timothy for for persecution that was inevitably around the corner. And though you and I probably won't face the same type of trouble that, that Paul is warning Timothy about, There are challenges in life today. We'll have hard days at work, at home, with our health, with relationships everywhere. Life comes with storms, and when those storms come, we need to remember to take some time and to remember our identity. Remember that we are already saved. That we can't do it on our own that we are, are called by name and that we are loved. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for saving us and for calling us by name. Help us to find time this week to rest in that truth, to remember that you love us and that we are yours, that we've been set aside for a holy life. We pray these things in your name. Amen.